When did you first come to Paris? A hundred years ago, when I was 17. You should have seen me then. I was lovely. Because I'm not bad now. If you look quick, there's not too much light. And welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the winner of the 1937 awards. Oh, Christ, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> the Life of Emile Zola, which is utterly baffling to me because this movie is so rote and so boring (laughs) god it's so boring and like it definitely doesn't help that like i'm on to your tricks now paul mooney so the like central performance is just so fucking boring and rote yeah oh i have i felt exactly the same way because i was like oh you're just doing the thing that you do yeah i don't even see emile zola in this movie all i see is paul mooney doing his thing yeah where he's like i'm gonna pick three physical ticks and do them throughout the entire film and that's my character also i'll wear a beard <sighs> but it also does this thing That is my least favorite thing about biopics, where all issues and events in the world, like, stop existing when they aren't important to the main character. Mm. The only reason the, like, lives of French prostitutes are at all important in this film is that that's how he got famous. And the moment he's famous from it, it's no longer an issue the film gives a shit about for a (laughs) single second. Yeah. And it's really irritating because the first third of this movie is just like Emile Zola's greatest hits collection. All the big problems with 19th century French society and all of them are solved by this book cover montage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my biggest complaint really about this movie is that it's called The Life of Emile Zola, but... That's only like 25 minutes of the movie before he gets old and then the Dreyfus affair starts. Right. And that's the rest of the movie. It's not the life of Emile Zola. It's Emile Zola and the Dreyfus affair. The thing that also grates about that, besides the fact that it just takes for fucking ever. Like I got to the part where he accepts that he is going to like take on Dreyfus's case and like pause the movie because i was like oh surely it's almost done and like oscar really wants to go out so let me just see how much longer an hour is left of this goddamn film yeah because i was like how are they making this movie two hours long because they start the dreyfus affair so fast yeah and then it is oh i mean here's the thing the dreyfus affair historically is obviously very important and zola's participation in it and the Jacques piece that he wrote that was like the full front page of the newspaper is really important and it's an important milestone in like non-Jewish people fighting anti-Semitism and winning and the state not getting away with pegging stuff on Jewish people when it had nothing to do with them. That's great. It's also really boring to watch play out because it's just uh, like a court thing 
<laughs> well, here's the other thing. It's specifically framed, and it's about Emil Zola because it's about the bravery of him standing up to anti-Semitism, except this movie's made by a bunch of fucking cowards. So they never actually say that Dreyfus is Jewish at any point in the goddamn movie. That was really interesting to me. At one point they say something about, like, the country that he's from, and I'm like, what wh- What do you mean by that? <laughs> he's French. yeah. Isn't he? <laughs> and like, th- just the whole thing is wild because the whole back third is Paul Mooney doing these interminable fucking monologues about how brave he is. Oh, God, yeah. Literally, the actual Jacuzzi monologue scene is 10 minutes fucking long. It's insane. But then the movie itself has no actual sense of courage because Hitler's on the rise. And mm, I don't know if we want to touch anti-Semitism right now directly. That's a spicy meatball. Right, right. Like, I then, like, don't make the movie. It's, it's weird to me. Like, why would you even choose to make this movie, particularly at the time, and not confront anti-Semitism directly and by name? Yeah. Because you know that they're not going to play it in fucking Germany. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's overhyped, but it is that very stupid type of liberal centrism that's like, "Mm, well, if I phrase it the right way, then Hitler won't get angry. That's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that they, I mean, it's not that far from the Dreyfus Affair that people aren't aware of it. Yeah. Because it was like 20 something years or 30 years before. Yeah, it, it, I... I think I would have enjoyed this movie. Well, one, like, just take Paul Mooney out of it. Because I have to say, like, from the very beginning, as soon as he was like, oh, that's it, Paul. That's what I must do. When he's talking to Cezanne in their, like, Garrett apartment in Paris. And I, I was like, you're just doing the same shit that you did at the beginning of The Good Earth, my dude. I can see through you. Yeah, he gave Emil Zola Wang's weird tick of always having one arm behind his back. Yeah, or maybe that's just Paul Mooney. Maybe. I don't remember him doing that in I Have a Fugitive from a Chang Gang, but I sure as hell am not going to watch that movie again to find out if he does that. Right, yeah. No, never. <laughs> never, ever, 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 ever. But, yeah, it uh, he, he was just so painful to watch. But, I would like to have seen the development of Zola and, like, what drove him to want to write in the way that he did, which was this very naturalist depiction of what French life was like, and not just like, oh, there was a girl one time. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely gets short shrift and becomes this uh, shitty, poor, that's the only authentic thing thing that I always hate. Instead of any actual exploration of him as an artist. Right. It's just, he was poor once and that's why he's insightful. And then he has money and has to fight against having money. That's his brave struggle. (laughs) Yeah. Like in this film, it is, which is like really shitty to Emil Zola. That is the struggle he has to overcome is he's too comfortable. Right, right. That's so fucking stupid. Yeah. And- And, like, either make a movie about his life as a young artist or admit that you are making a movie about the Dreyfus Affair where Zola is not a central player. Like, 
our best actor and best supporting actor nods should reverse, both because the guy playing Dreyfus is way, way better than Paul Mooney. He's great. Oh, and I was so mad about it. <laughs> Same. And because that's the story this movie wants to tell, where Dreyfus is the central character. And then Zola kind of comes in at the like end of the second act and like right as hope is lost. Then he's this big character actor turn moment for a Dreyfus movie and he'd be great but then you're just like why did I have to watch this fucking dumb shit with Cezanne for half an hour <laughs> like that has nothing to do with this movie no it was it was totally it was totally hey did you know that Emile Zola and Paul Cezanne were roommates that's it god just like that thing where he coughs about the indoor stove in the first scene that's supposed to be like an M. Night Shyamalanian twist with the murderer was there in the first scene. And it's like, this movie is fucking way too impressed with its own cleverness from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, plot-wise, like, I, I guess if you took European history in high school, you already know it. <laughs> yeah. What's funny is, actually, I had to read Germinal in... AP European history. It was like our summer book that we had to read before we started the class. And I couldn't, I could not get through it. And I was like, man, I really respect Emil Zola for wanting to document the lives of the peasants and to write stuff about like how difficult it is to survive as a working class or farmer French person. And that children die really young and people have to do survival sex work in order to survive. And I'm like, yeah, I I always appreciated that, but my god, I could not get through the book. And I kind of felt that way watching this movie. <laughs> of like, oh, okay, yeah. Except this movie didn't have the courage that Emile Zola had. <laughs> it was just dry and boring. Yeah, it makes it so that what's supposedly compelling about his work is this, like, prurient interest people have in the lives of the underclass and not that like he's speaking unspeakable truths which is very weird because the movie kind of doesn't necessarily want to go into what those unspeakable truths are no like the woman that he meets and i guess falls for is a never named prostitute but he writes his first book about her called Nana. But they like dance around the fact that she's a prostitute. And you're like, yeah, I mean, I get it. I know what's happening here. Like she's running from the police. And then everyone's like, oh my God, this book is so trashy. No one will ever read it. And he like gets fired from his job because the censors go to his boss and say like, I know you didn't tell him to write this, but he does work for you. So watch out. And then his boss is like, oh, don't worry. I'm going to fire him. Uh, and then the book sells like 30,000 copies or something on the first run. But like after that, there's no drive anymore presented in the movie of wanting to pursue naturalism for the sake of telling the truth, really. Yeah. It's just that they say like, I believe in the truth and the truth will always win out. And I'm like, dude, show me. Stop telling me. Yeah. Really broad overview, like. The first third of the movie is Zola as a young, unsuccessful writer who's friends with Cezanne, slowly having a successful writing career, although really quickly because it's like 20 minutes. 
Then there's a weird portion where Cezanne tells him that you can never do good art when you're fat and happy. And I'm like, well, that's a shitty thing to say on several levels, but okay, man. (laughs) And then we hit the Dreyfus Affair, where if you don't know about the Dreyfus Affair, a Jewish French officer, they sort of pinned this spy charge on him pretty blatantly because he was Jewish. He was tried for treason, uh, locked up for 10 years. Eventually, Zola takes up the case because new evidence comes to light that somebody else was the spy and not Dreyfus. Then there's a very long section about Zola's court battle for libel for publishing the truth about the Dreyfus affair. And then he's convicted of libel, goes on the run to England. Dreyfus is eventually, in this movie for very weird reasons, found innocent. His innocence is proven publicly, and then Zola dies of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning in the movie the day before he gets to meet Dreyfus, which makes it all the more tragic, but also is not how that happened. Right. Dreyfus wasn't proven innocent. He was given the option of pleading guilty and that they would give him a pardon because he applied for a retrial and they were like, nope, we can't. We actually can't bring any of this to trial, so we'll pardon you if you plead guilty. Yeah. That was not the the same thing at all. And, like, eventually, slowly, he was declared innocent. But the problem with it is that there's this long series of slow baby steps toward justice. And the movie's like, oh, I'm at the end of the movie. We can't do that. So, like, there's got to be the big moment of justice, and, like, Zola's death has to be a big part of the end of the story, instead of just also the guy died at at, at a certain point later. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's not historically accurate, and yet it doesn't change the historical record for reasons of making the movie interesting. Because, my God, all of the, like, sitting around and talking about it and then going to trial and how much of the trial is, like, they bring somebody up and they're like, we can't talk about this. And I swear 20 minutes are spent on them arguing about how you can't have a trial if people can't talk about stuff because it's classified information. Yeah. We're not moving forward here. Nothing is happening. And then after this whole sequence where Zola practically disappears from the film for almost the entire courtroom sequence and his defense attorney becomes, like, the main character of the movie for 15 minutes... And then just nonsensically, they let Zola do the closing argument, which is like, well, if you're going to play Calvin Ball with how court works that much anyway, (laughs) then like, why aren't you having him interject throughout the court case? Like, why are you doing this? And also, the court case is so inert because nobody will say anti-Semitism. And so it becomes this sort of abstract argument about abuses of government power where just like the government can abuse its authority on any random citizen and like yeah but they didn't they did it on a specific guy for a specific reason and that's really important actually the movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense in that way and it's so dry it's like usually when we watch a movie for this that doesn't make any sense it's because it's bonkers and this is just pulling all of its punches so that it doesn't have to actually confront the thing that it is about and it becomes nonsense as a result 
why Zola is so reluctant to take up the case is basically nonsense. Why they pick this guy. They literally just have a big book of officers and go like, Dreyfus, there's our man. (laughs) And so you just get the sense that the miscarriage of justice we're worried about is that sometimes the government will pick a name out of a hat and fuck with him. Right, which is not the issue at hand at all. Yeah. Ugh. Nothing has any weight to it. It's just about truth and justice as these big words people throw around. Yeah, I I didn't love it. (laughs) No, and like, I wish we had a lot more to talk about, but like, the actor playing Dreyfus is very good. Whenever Emile Zola is not on screen, this movie gets noticeably better. (laughs) Yeah. But that's maybe, maybe 10 minutes of this 116 minute movie. Yeah. And like some of the supporting actors are okay, but honestly, mostly everybody's just standing around and feeding lines to Paul Mooney so that he can fucking do another 10 page monologue. So you really don't, outside of Dreyfus, there's not really much for the other actors to do. No, everybody was forgettable. I mean, that's not entirely true. Uh, Aaron O'Brien Moore, who plays the prostitute at the beginning, was actually very moving, I thought. Yes. Similarly, I I think the actress who plays Dreyfus's wife. Yeah, she's also quite good. But, like, both of them get, like, one showcase scene. Mm -hmm. And then mostly just stand around nodding and, like, having tears in their eyes about what a great guy Emil Zola is. And I'm not buying it. No. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not buying it. And I am so fucking sick of Paul Mooney playing everybody. He's not even that good of an actor. That's the really frustrating thing. It's not like he disappears into his character or whatever. Like, he was good in I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang because he just played a white dude and not a famous one. (laughs) I think it's notable that the Life of Emile Zola poster has a picture of Paul Mooney. Definitely Paul Mooney. None of the makeup he has for Emile Zola. It is just Paul Mooney. It is important you know Paul Mooney is in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Who he's playing is unimportant. Yeah, that's really clear. The question for me, though, is why was he such a star? It's not like he's Clark Gable, like, drop-dead gorgeous. He just looks like, he looks like a guy. I think, one, it's easy to mistake what he does for, like, really, really thorough acting. Because he he acts super hard. He just doesn't really embody the character in any way in his acting. He just performs hard at the, at the camera. And I think the Academy can kind of really get into that. And two, I think he just picks really good movies. I think he picks movies that the Academy is going to like. Clearly, the Academy picked this because they're like, we made a brave stand against anti-Semitism. Reward us. Tell us how great we are. When in, when in fact, they did nothing of the kind. But like that is what they wanted to reward this movie for, was for how 1937 woke they were. Eh. And pretty much all Paul Mooney's films fall into that category of, isn't it brave of Hollywood to make this movie? And uh, and it wasn't. No. In fact. Absolutely. <laughs> the only one that was arguably actually brave was I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Yeah. That's the only one that did anything that was 
at all disruptive to anyone who was alive. Yeah, I mean, of all of the movies that we have watched that have dealt with or at least tiptoed around dealing with anti-Semitism, the one that I feel like was the most successful was the one that actually dealt with it the least, which was Disraeli. Which was not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a situation where, you know, the guy was smarter than everybody else. So every time somebody was like, oh, he's a Jew, it was like, yeah, but you're also dumb. (laughs) Yeah, there was also this sense where by not making it central, Disraeli gave you this sense that the, like, anti-Semitism was always lurking off screen. Yeah. In this way that, like, oh, it is actually insidious like that. That's actually how that works. Right. Whereas this wants the credit of dealing with anti-Semitism because it knows that you know about the Dreyfus affair, but it doesn't actually want to grapple with that in any way. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I I didn't love this movie. I don't think it was very good. I'm not surprised that it was nominated because even now, all you have to do to get a fucking Best Picture nomination is make a biopic about anyone at all. But I'm really surprised that it won because we've watched one movie that I think is definitely head and shoulders above any of the other ones we've watched so far this year, which would be A Star is Born. But Lost Horizon was better than this. Captain's Courageous was even better than this movie. Yeah. The Good Earth was not. It was it was like it was horrible, whereas this movie was just boring and uh, totally mediocre. I am sad that this is the f- first year after that run where they gave gave you the runner-ups that they don't give us the runner-ups. Right? Because I can't imagine A Star is Born wasn't second place. Because it's the other kind of movie that Hollywood loves, which is movies about Hollywood. And it also is like the first... Best Picture nominee that's in color. It's uh, It has a lot going for it. I mean, it wasn't perfect. I did feel like there was a lack of cohesion in that movie, but God, it was so much better than this. Oh yeah, tons better. I think this is narratively worse. This is a worse like act of filmmaking than The Good Earth. Yes. It is a better movie than The Good Earth because it is not straight racist trash from start to finish. <laughs> yeah. But like... This, in terms of, like, the technical making of a film, is the worst Paul Mooney film we've watched. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It didn't make me want to set things on fire. It didn't make me lose faith in general in the medium of film. So, like, it does have that going for it. (laughs) Yeah. It was just boring. As much as I have shit-talked a ton of films that we've watched... This was really the first time that I paused the movie and was just shocked at how little time had passed. Just, I could not, my mind boggled that I was less than an hour into this film when I paused, when he announced that he was going to, well, he didn't even really announce it. When he, like, kept her letters or whatever thing he does that's a tell that he's going to take up Dreyfus's case. Right. And I paused. It blew my mind that it was only 50 minutes into this film because it felt like I had been watching this movie for conservatively an hour and a half. (laughs) Like the absolute least amount of time I could have imagined was an hour and 30 minutes. It's the first movie that we've watched, for me anyway, where I could get distracted by something or like go to the kitchen, which is off of the living room, and I could like hear the television from the kitchen 
But like, I'm going to go get a snack and come back. And literally nothing had changed. Oh, yeah. Like we have not moved forward in any way from where we were in the minute and a half I had been gone. And that had like this weird hypnotic effect that wrapped back around to almost being the same as like when you would leave the room during like the Thin Man or something and come back and go like, oh, I missed three scenes where like I would come back and go like, well, surely he can't be giving the same monologue. I must have missed something. The scene, I swear to God, I keep harping on it, but that's the J'accuse scene where he just reads the whole fucking thing Ugh. is so long that I'm like, legally, someone c- must have stopped them. This can't be happening. <laughs> well, also, that was very frustrating to me because nobody would do that. I don't think that he ever read Jacques aloud. God, and that thing where he comes in and they're like, what do you intend to do? And he goes, I intend to set off a bomb. And they're like, what? And he goes, I mean, metaphorically, I'm going to read a letter now. And like, it's, no one says that. That's not what the... (laughs) And then reads six columns of newspaper print. Oh my God. Whole page columns. I know that I have described films as taking a calendar year on this podcast before. And so I just want to stress again, when I say that scene takes 10 minutes... I am not making that number up. He stands there and reads for 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So should we rate this movie? Yeah. Um. I'm going to give it a three. I'm going to give it a three. I mean, that was what immediately popped into my head was just like, it doesn't actively make the world a worse place. It's not advocating for terrible things. That's true. It's not wildly racist, even while it's not actually anti-racist. The spirit gum work on Paul Mooney's Emil Zola beard is pretty good. Yeah, but the beard itself is so distracting. Oh, yeah. No. It totally reads like middle school theater. God, and his like fake fat suit that he can't stop padding when he is fat and happy. (sighs) We get it. (sighs) You're successful. Anyway. Shut up. (laughs) Before I talk myself down to a two. Yeah, three. (laughs) Uh, Should you- Don't watch this film. Don't watch this film. God, don't watch this film. Just go read Jacques. Yeah, go read literally anything by Mil Sola. It will be a better use of your time. I don't know that I'm going to recommend that because, again, German all was a real struggle. Maybe I had a bad translation, you know? I don't know. But I'm not saying you necessarily have to read anything by Emile Zola. (laughs) So for next week, not to try to curse us, but I feel like things are looking up because we have the first Humphrey Bogart movie of this podcast. With a garbage ass poster. Yep. And it is called Dead End. Yeah. Poster sucks. Humphrey Bogart's in it. It's, you know, life is, life is looking up. The tagline is one of those, like, just the waveform won't collapse taglines where I can't tell if I love it or I hate it. The most exciting picture of the world's most exciting city is like... It feels like somebody translated that in from English into <laughs> five other yes. languages and then back. Yeah, they invented Google Translate in 1937. Because, <laughs> like, that... Preposition is a weird 
preposition. Not the most exciting picture about the world's most exciting city. Or in. Like, of. Yeah. Of is, like, it makes me think that it is a photograph for some well, it, reason. It also pretty directly implies that there are more exciting pictures that aren't about New York. This is the <laughs> most exciting picture about New York. Yes. Other movies are more exciting. <laughs> But this is the most exciting one about the city. So, yeah. So until then. The... This was a biopic. And and I mean that as an insult. <laughs> Agreed. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Before you gentlemen of the jury. Before France. Before the whole world. I swear that Dreyfus is innocent.